0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And
1: this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pell Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Big Science! The Mad Baron. From Arc to Procedural.
0: And Roger Babson.
1: When we're not talking about stuff, odds are good that we're making games. Game playwright press and Atlas Games think making games is awesome, too. That's why they're kickstarting The White Box, a game design workshop in a box. The White Box is a book, huh, of essays by game design professor Jeremy Holcomb.
0: Plus, here's where the box part comes in, a boatload of wooden bits plastic discs, and punchboard tokens.
1: It's the perfect catalyst to get the game design that's stuck in your head out of there and onto the tabletop.
0: It'll fulfill in October, so it's a great holiday gift for aspiring game designers, creative young people, and that inveterate house ruler in your board game group. The
1: White Box Kickstarter is going on now. Search Kickstarter for The White Box. Or visit atlas-games.com slash The White Box. Plus the traditional link in the show notes. Making games is rad. Back the white box now. The clank of dice, the whir of miniatures, the electric blue arcing of electric flavor Doritos, and the tiny shiny gaze of Gary Newman welcome us to the gaming hut. And it's not just any gaming hut. It's not even just a hyper-scientific gaming hut. It's the first hut in an all-request episode. All Patreon backers all the time, because Patreon backer Stuart Robertson has asked us, How do you make a big, setting-changing science project interesting, beyond antagonists attempting to stop the PCs or needing to collect some MacGuffin to power the project? Is there some way to make the process itself interesting? So, Robin... How do we make science interesting in game terms? Obviously, it's super interesting because, as I understand it, being a humanities guy myself, science consists of finding exciting pictures of galaxies or octopuses and tweeting them all the time. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, yeah, preferably a, a galaxy shaped like an octopus. Even That
1: would be ideal. If you could find the octopus galaxy, I think that's the unified field Yes, that people so, talk about. Uh, if
0: the question is, how do I make X in role-playing interesting, my first go-to is... Give players choice and agency. So if this uh, series revolves around uh, a big science project, I would say that what you want to do is you have stages along the way as you structure your series. And it might be every episode, might be every three episodes. Uh, You know that better than I do in terms of your pacing. But the idea is that you give the players choices that affect what it is that the big science thing is going to do or... Uh, other issues around it so i would start off with the obvious first choice of you've been brought on as security to protect the big science project and then you have the antagonist attack you know if you if you have an obvious idea use that first that's the clear one and then after that uh, you want to make the characters not just the security force but also they are the scientists as well because that lets them take part in uh the science it's not a background element then and then they have a choice to make in the next uh episode they Uh, discover that the uh, uh, refraction hinge uh, only works if you uh, deplete this uh, uh, particular uh, rare resource, and then you can go and hunt for it, um, either in an asteroid belt or uh, on this uh, uh, planet where there's this uh, fragile culture that you don't want to interfere with. And so that's not a choice uh, about what the science project will be, but that's a choice arising from the science project or the next thing, you, you know, it, why don't we pick what this machine does? Well, what does it do,
1: Ken? Well, obviously this machine is a counter gravitor.
0: Ah, I see some foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's also okay. a
1: foreshadowing machine.
0: Right. Uh, so we have a counter gravitor and the idea is uh, that you wanted uh, free people from the, from the shackles of gravity. And yes. so man's um, the, oldest foe. Right. And so the first question then is, As you're working on the project, do you want to go in this one direction where you have an individual handheld device uh, where the uh, people operating it can uh, decide whether gravity works for them or not and to what degree, or you have a a bigger sort of uh, waveform device that uh, then would be a big installation-style beam that you would... uh, you know, have a great big truck on and uh, you would drive it up to whatever area you wanted to reduce gravity on and then let people, um, you know, beam it at a whole area and that would lift a whole building at a time, uh, it would be more expensive, it would be harder to handle, but it would also have greater social control behind it. And so the players are the ones who decide, are we going to build our anti-gravity technology or we going to focus it on uh, individual consumer level device or big sized industrial level de- device, knowing that anti gravity technology is going to radically change society as well as fill your pocketbooks or increase your status or uh, allow you to you finally greater, get to Mars. Yeah, we when you, need when you greater rank and, and <laughs> in, in my game, whatever it is.
1: Building an anti gravity machine would be a side quest on the way to find something on Mars that they thought they needed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, they've heard there's a space octopus there that they would like to put on and, and
1: And a dozen episodes in, they'd say, why are we building an anti-gravity machine again? Does anyone remember?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's that octopus thing on Mars. And then yeah. the GM goes back
1: and looks in his nuts. Oh yeah, That cool picture. That uh, I think that you are touching on my answer. Mom, he's
0: touching my answer.
1: You're touching my answer. Robin, stop it. Uh, which is that if you want something to become interesting in the game, and you don't believe you can simply describe it into interestingness, which is possibly right, add uh, game mechanics for it. Make it a mechanical event. Put in choice and risk. And that in, that in can be a thing where you roll dice, and if you roll really well, then the project advances, and if you roll really badly, you've blown something up, and all the counter gravitor components are fused, and you have to start over, or you've gone down a side trail, or whatever, but make it a a sort of a chase it would obviously be a long term chase because you don't build anti gravity in a day that's a time machine and, and so you you have sort of the same thing as a chase mechanic but you space it out and another thing in terms of giving players choice and agency is allow them to use their experience points instead of to improve themselves to improve the anti gravity project to make their their odds better or move them along the chase tracker in in some other way visibly contribute to the anti-gravity project and their characters justifies it by saying, Oh, I didn't get any better at shooting people because I spent all my target range time down at the, at the gravity project uh working to, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, do whatever it is. The gunman does on a gravity project, shoot the spreadsheet uh, or something. And so the, uh and so the players get a thing where it's like, no, I contributed to this project because I literally gave up something to make anti-gravity happen. And if, you can provide a mechanical uh, level of interest and excitement to the process and also allow their characters to visibly contribute to the process such that an experience point is a significant but not game-changing contribution. Then you can also... Sprinkle in the standard. We have to go get Caverite from the meteor on the uh, in Africa, or we have to beat up the majestic twelve guys and make them give us the Roswell saucer, or whatever it is that you need to make the anti gravity project go ahead in a more standard role playing game sort of activity, as opposed to well, hard day at the lab, everyone. I think that was a good four hours around the game table. Uh, let's all knock off for pictures of galaxies and then go home.
0: Uh, Screenwriting 101 suggests that there are a couple of other ways to make things more interesting, which is you can. Cast increase- Anne Hathaway. <laughs> yes, add Anne, Anne-, Anne Hathaway. Um, well, that's, that's casting, not screenwriting. Well,
1: screenwriting. screenwriting is like going over and saying to the casting director, you've got to make something interesting about this movie. Because yeah. this is just this is just a bunch of guys looking at an anti-gravity machine. you got to help us.
0: You, you type in a glamorous researcher yes. bracket and Anne Hathaway type. And Anne Hathaway type. See, it is screenwriting. There you go. Um, other things you can do are to make it uh, either a race or put a countdown clock on it. So that in the first case... You have competitors who are also working on um, gravimetric shielding.
1: The commies, probably. Yeah, but if you're second to market, you're lost.
0: You know, the, yep. the, if they if they get this first, um, all of your efforts are for naught. And so that then enables
1: a whole series of or the rich fat kids laboratory across the lake. Yes. <laughs>
0: And so, uh, that enables your, uh, sort of, uh, industrial espionage mission where you are either, it's more interesting to go and sneak over and look at their machine than it is to defend against their coming and sneaking at yours. But But
1: both are vital tasks.
0: Yes. Um, it becomes more interesting. Actually, you catch them. Now, what do you do with them? Yeah, Right. That becomes a moral dilemma. And, you know, is there, do you do a prisoner exchange to, uh, uh, give their guys back to them in, in exchange for uh you know several pages worth of schematics or uh do you suspect that possibly the schematics they give you will be uh torqued that uh, uh this is something in the news now with the the north korean uh, missile building uh crisis that uh, there's some thought that they keep failing because somebody keeps selling them borked parts into their supply chain so uh, you could have a whole you know, you tested your thing, and it failed, and everything blew up in the launch pad, and now you've done an inventory of all of your parts, and you realize that this particular set of parts was uh, rooted through uh, Alpha Centauri, and oh, they're clearly working for the other guys, so let's go find out, uh, you know, who from Alpha Centauri is trying to mess with us.
1: Or you've downloaded a a Stuxnet computer virus, and your anti-gravity centrifuges are all messed up, and you have to figure out who put the virus into the system and who sent it to you because it might, because computer viruses, of course can frame all kinds of people depending on how you c- construct them.
0: Right. Uh, if you want a uh, sort of a, a morally less ambiguous setup, you can have uh, the fact that you need to complete your anti-gravity uh, wave by the end of the year. Otherwise aliens who are uh, somehow have their own anti-grav technology and you need them, in or- you need this in order to defeat them. Uh, that if you you know the, you know their first ships are going to be arriving because of course you can see in the telescopes their warp drive doesn't allow them to suddenly appear and sneak up you know you've got a year in advance to get anti-grav technology or that the uh, or the, the moon grav is going to crash
1: into the earth yes exactly it's a big old disaster movie type episode yeah.
0: and so uh, that is uh, less about uh, active antagonists but uh, is more about time as a a resource I think active antagonists are a little easier to do in role playing mm-hmm. than than just uh well, you can combine
1: against- them right because yeah. even if you've got a crisis it's like uh other people are now really trying to get your research so and they're like you you're like, well we've only built something that can take a ship full of millionaires and their bodyguards and mistresses off the planet we need enough to defend the planet against the moon and the millionaires are like well you're done man let's go and then you've got to fight off millionaire army instead of uh do your research and that again is a choice is like how much time do we spend fighting millionaires versus uh, doing our research.
0: Yes, there's two alliances on your planet, uh, the, the Democrats and the Autocrats, and the Autocrats are also working for the the machine, but if they get it and the aliens arrive, they're just going to protect themselves. They'll just they're alternative
1: gonna... three this thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, whereas, of course, we're going to protect the Autocrats in in an attempt to uh, show them that uh, playing nice is, uh, is good, or we'll maybe we'll squeeze them a little, but it, it, it better be us who have this because we know that uh, definitely we'll we'll get squished. If you we, don't yeah. want
1: Khrushchev to have the anti-gravitor, exactly.
0: So that gives you uh, a whole bunch of different conflicts. A whole bunch of you can have an external threat that you're trying to deal with in a certain period of time, or uh, a, a competitor. Um, and uh, on, on a more prosaic level, uh, there's all sorts of other conflicts that you can have uh, once you have your machine online and it's sort of working. But do you spend the research time in order to make sure that it's cheap enough that everybody can have graph technology? Or are you content uh, with a system where only the millionaires get uh, anti grave technology? And uh, if you give it to them, they'll abuse it in all sorts of crazy uh, mustache twirling ways. The working
1: ways. man is stuck weighing things like he always has. Yes, exactly. Another thing that you can do, I mean, this is backing us a little bit up, but it just occurred to me, um, is that... I think if you're trying to make the science process interesting, you should think of alternate roads to the scientific development. So for our gravity, is it a screen? Is it a ray? Is it an ointment? Is it a fundamental recasting of um, uh, atomic structure? What is the specific road by which, or the, uh, not just the mechanism, but the even the theory, if you can come up with enough bizarre anti-gravity theories that, and then make the players pick which one they're going down. And then you can have decided ahead of time or roll randomly or however you want to do it that, oh, they've gone down a, a false trail. And so maybe the secret is a screen, not a ray. And as they're, you know, plugging away at the screen, they get details like, uh, North Korea is developing a ray. Uh, oh no, uh, the, uh, you know, the millionaire rich fat kids laboratory is developing a metal. You know, are you sure you want to stick with the screen? Yeah, and and then that sets it up as not just you don't like them because they're North Korea or fat kids, but you don't like them because they are working against uh your your scientific concept, and that makes the the whole sort of conflict a little more sciencey uh, the way that you do in in your movies where you know Darwin is the handsome guy and Lamarck is a a mean guy with a British accent, because obviously Darwin wouldn't have a British accent, he's the hero.
0: Right, because if you structure things so that uh, there's a right choice and a wrong choice, that's a guessing game. But if you structure it so that the choices are trade-offs, right? that you can have this technology will probably be uh, completed a month ahead of time, but it's going to have really huge uh, energy costs down the line. But if you uh, take a risk, and uh, and embark on this other path that may take you longer and has a higher risk of failure. But if you succeed, it will cost very little energy to operate the thing. Over time, that will be a much greater boon to humanity than something that requires, uh, you know, a third of the world's energy output in order to uh, operate your big anti-gravity thing. And so uh, you have to, you have a series of trade-offs between, or, you know, we can do this uh, item again and it can be, very eco-friendly or it can uh, strip uh, key trace minerals out of the environment that after a while, we're going to have to go find another planet to find more of these uh, materials. And so you have to then choose.
1: Of course, but uh, then we'll have anti-gravity. So, woohoo!
0: right. So it's like, but what problem do you want to have? And then yeah. that becomes more meaningful than just door number one, door number two.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean the part of the goal, I think with a science type game is to make, you know, because the, the process of science really is picking door number one or picking door number two. It's not usually a, a matter of trade-offs with, with uh, the, the pure science uh, the technology maybe is. And so if you're trying to add that scientific feeling, I think it, 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 it kind of adds to the gamble and the risk that you might have gone down a, a, a blind alley and you, you set, you, you know, you're totally fair with the players and you say, you don't know necessarily the research is dubious that it, it's anti-gravity for goodness sake, who knows right. what could be possible?
0: Yeah. that That's the early stage where it's like, what, what theory of anti-gravity are right. we going to adopt? And then later you get the techno you know, once you're taking that from pure to applied science. Then you get the well the trade-offs yeah this will be cheaper but more unreliable yes and, or this then, would
1: work great if we had a fusion engine
0: right and then of course you know you have the inevitable episode where the investors show up mm-hmm. and they uh the Howard
1: Hughes bit from Tucker
0: yes they've heard from the the rich kids across the lake and they've lost confidence in your process and uh, they uh, they demand that uh, or you know or that the investor shows up and says well you know I've been looking at all of your plans here and you know my my tungsten plant, uh, is going idle. So I, I want you to select the, uh, the tungsten based option. And you're like, oh, not tungsten. Oh. And, uh, you know, you, you then have to find a way, uh, to get through the, the politics of, uh, of that science or the, well, in that case, the finance of science. But, you know, politics of science is another thing, right? The administration yeah. changes partway through and they've decided that they don't, tr- uh, rely on your, your crazy quantum theories. They've, They've been convinced uh, by this crank guy who you dismissed uh, early on that the uh the sub quantum theory is the one to go with, and then you have to you know uh, somehow find your way back into the graces of your uh, government sponsors
1: uh possibly by building it as a weapon just like you promised yourself you never would yeah, exactly. that's,
0: that's your classic uh technological uh, quandary
1: isn't it all right i I think that we have gotten about as far into the question of anti-gravity as you possibly can in one hut. I don't think we're going to talk about anti-gravity again at all. No, I think we're done. I think uh, this hut is full to the bursting because all of the parts are just floating and bouncing against the walls now. And that means we should float out of it, perhaps. Floaty float float. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential,
0: combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror
1: of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos.
0: Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play
1: in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Chris Spivey. Sating journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond Presenting three terrifying settings Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night.
0: Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless
1: Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun.
0: The pounding of hooves across the steps, the rattle of machine gun fire, tell us that we've entered a particularly yurt-shaped edition of the History hut, And we do so, of course, at the behest of of Patreon backer Morgan Ellis, because he wants to know about the mad baron Roman von Ungern Sternberg, or known for short as Ungern, uh, which I'm sure must be the name also of a metal band, probably industrial metal, I would guess. But before there was the imaginary band, there was the mad baron, and uh, he fought in the anti-Bolshevik side in the Russian Revolution. He was... uh, Uh, So pro-monarchist that he thought uh, what we really needed to come back in the early 20th century was the Mongol Empire. So Ken, he had a, a brief yet exciting career... Uh, There was one big year in his life where a whole bunch of things happened, and then nothing more ever happened to him again. So where do you want to start the story? Yeah,
1: for for the reason that nothing more happens to most people, in fact, not because he had a quiet retirement and raised bees.
0: Well, I I was hastened by a firing squad, but perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves. Perhaps
1: we're getting, when you open on the firing squad, that's bad screenwriting. Well, it's good
0: screenwriting if you're going to sympathize with him and you're going to be too sad at the end. It's, it's the Gandhi thing, right? Yeah. Have, have him right. shot at
1: the beginning and then go flashback. That's right. And then flashback. So, okay. Yeah. We've had the code up. Again with a voiceover. Record scratch. That's me. I bet you're wondering how I got here. Exactly. Hilarious buddy comedy starring Baron Roman, Nicholas Maximilian, von Ungarn, Sternberg. Uh, he was a Estonian or not an Estonian. I think he was born in, uh, he's, he's of Baltic, uh, descent, right? Uh, Baltic German. Uh, the Baltic Germans actually don't quite get to Estonia, really, but he's, uh, winds up in, um, uh, in Austria and he moves to Estonia. That's what happens. Right. He, he, uh, moves to Estonia, uh, becomes. So was he
0: a Balt? He was one of the. The ultra-rightist. Uh, yes, Germans yes, he who, was. He was yeah, one okay, of those guys.
1: It. Despite being a proud German, he was an even prouder Russian imperial subject. Uh, I guess that's because he was a baron, and he was very excited to be in the cavalry, which you may suspect in World War One is not as good a deal as it might have been. If you have dreams of the Mongol Empire, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you no, I mean that, that's where you certainly get your your Mongol attitude. Um, he uh, he did. Visit Mongolia uh, as a younger man. He became obsessed with Buddhism uh, at, during the revolutionary and tumultuous times around the Decemberist Revolution in 1905, 1906. That's when you have the uh, a big mystical political wave sweeping over Russia. All kinds of people having crazy notions. He served with Buryats and Mongols out there in the Amur. He his men were Cossacks, but he he recognized fellow people who like to ride around and stab people. He, uh, he got into fights because that's what you do if you're with a Cossack regiment on the Mongol frontier. And some people are like, oh, it was only because he was hit in the head a lot that he turned bad, which would be a great theory if we could figure out that everyone who ever turned bad got hit in the head a lot. You know, he may have just always been a problem child.
0: I- I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he put himself in situations where he would get hit
1: on the head a lot. Yeah he he certainly he did not not invite getting hit in the head yes. i think that's fair he fought in galicia and in the caucasus in world war 1 and then he tried speaking of of raising um uh, dead empires he tried to raise a regiment of assyrians to fight the ottoman turks
0: oh so after that just re re the mongol empire seemed like a snap <laughs> i kind of re- it is. revised my Calculations downwards.
1: <laughs> and so, after the um, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, he, of course, being a, a, f- uh, a fervent aristocrat and fervent reactionary, uh, hated the Bolsheviks with a passion and set up his own cavalry unit and began. Riding around and, and stabbing people.
0: Well, he knew that the Bolsheviks weren't going to reinstate the Scythian Empire, so.
1: No, they were not going to reinstate the Sarmatian, uh, the uh, ram of uh, women warriors uh, riding around shooting people. So he uh, he he wound up forming uh, what he called the Volunteer Asiatic Cavalry Division, and the Asiatic Cavalry Division is like where this is the beginning of the movie where he's getting people. Uh, from all different traditions of riding around and stabbing each other uh to f- to team up and and become part of his awesome army of folks uh who who don't like the bolsheviks and
0: right. so so there's seven uh warriors from seven different horse riding tribes that he has to go and recruit in different ways and right yeah one of them is a knife thrower and mm-hmm. the other one is of a them the, one okay. is an
1: archer one guy's like a got a, a super good rifle yeah yeah it it's terrific, but instead of protecting peasants from bandits. He flips the script and becomes a bandit, um, and also, uh, governs absolutely in his little zone of the front, uh, slaughtering would be reds and possible reds and probably some reds at the time. And I'm betting a bunch of innocent people too. Uh, maybe, you know, they weren't innocent. Uh, you know, if, if you, if you're at the point of a lance and you still look like a commie, maybe you're not that innocent, but you might be. Who can say? Um, you know, the mistakes are made, as they say. So he um, uh, he goes out into uh, Manchuria and China to fight the, uh, the the Chinese and keep an eye on the Japanese because the Chinese are taking advantage of the trouble to mess around in Mongolia. And he uh, meets the king of Mongolia, who also does not want to be messed with by the Chinese and marries a Manchurian princess. And winds up basically attempting the, this all just looks like crazy behavior. But I think militarily, the plan is to secure the southern flank of the Trans-Siberian Railway, which is the only way that you're going to be able to get supplies to the whites, uh, in, the, in the, in the war, the whites versus reds, not white people. He's surrounded by, uh, Asians at this point. But the only way you can get supplies to the, the white side in the Civil War is to keep that railway open. So he's not just being a crazy person. He's attempting to keep that southern flank of the railroad safe. And that is why, as well as, you know, personal obsession, he goes into Mongolia.
0: And so, uh, once in Mongolia, uh, he sort of sets up a, a fiefdom, or, or, you know, I think he, doesn't he sort of nicely let someone else run his fiefdom for him?
1: Well, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's many things, but he is not the Mongolian, uh, Khan. And so he finds the Mongolian Khan, a guy named Bog, the Bogd Khan, uh, who has been kept in a monastery to stop him being a Khan. Um, I don't know if he was kept in chains and he's like floating like a Superman villain, or if he's just like there, you know, counting pebbles and is grabbed uh, you know <laughs> from his innocent hobby of of not being con and, and probably. So this up plan was known as stop a Con, Stop a Khan. No, this was the opposite of Stop a Khan, Stop a Khan. Well, the people who had him in the monastery. Yeah, that that was their plan. And they yeah. probably said it over and over while they spun their prayer wheel. Exactly. In a in a rhythmic fashion. Yes. So he elevates the Khan con to condom. Uh, drives the Chinese, uh, out of Mongolia, and the Khan then makes him the Darkhan Koshoi Chin Wang, which is like a Khan, but is, um, uh, but is not quite as good. And he sort of becomes the right hand of the Bogd Khan, and one assumes the Bogd Khan did not necessarily have an awful lot of day to day governing power. He's probably just sat around and conned. Um, but he also made sure to massacre people who looked at anyone sideways, because that was part of his, you know, that was part of his governance tradition. It's bullet point number one on the con job description. And so far you would say, Ken, you're, you're awfully into this guy. If all he does is ride around and kill people, surely you have a plethora of people like that, but Polish theosophist and adventurer, uh, Ferdinand Osandowski showed up at, uh, Ungarn von Sternberg's court in Mongolia, following rumors that the wrathful Buddha had been awakened and was out there slapping everybody around. And whether or not this is propaganda that Ungarn had spread, whether this was things that his other writers had spread because it was the only way they could conceive of someone as crazy as Ungarn existing, or whether it was a legitimate belief that was current because they were being messed with by Chinese and Russians. And when you are messed with, you come up with stories just like the Welsh invented King Arthur about the time that they started meeting the English on a daily basis. So they, they began saying, ah, the wrathful Buddha is coming back. The, 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 the the Buddha of war is arriving. And Osandowski immediately says, oh, this ties in with the prophecies of Agartha and the king of, and the king of war and the king of the world who will emerge from the hollow earth in the East. And rule the world. And for a while, Ossendowski thought maybe Ungarn Sternberg is in touch with the, with the Theosophist secret masters in the hollow earth. If you want extra mythology slapped on something, call a Theosophist. Call a Theosophist. And indeed, um, possibly because his first question to Ungarn Sternberg is, is is not are you quite all right but is are you the <laughs> wrathful buddha who is sent to us from the theosophist masters he became fast friends with ungarn and we would got, all be tempted to say yes to that he got full access and that's why he's sort of famous in uh the kind of crazy person territory that is that is that is my remit but as all things must um uh, crazy person mongolia must fall to communism uh, the, uh, the, 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 Bolsheviks pour over the border, uh, probably not in great numbers, but in enough numbers to defeat, uh, a few Cossacks. And they toss Ungarn out of power. Well, they well take didn't over. he decide
0: to like attack Siberia or something, which is like never a good idea?
1: Well, he was, he was always in the process of attacking Siberia because that, again, was the whole point of this was to keep the Trans-Siberian Railroad open. And when the Japanese pull out of Vladivostok and the Americans pull out of Siberia, that end of the war sort of falls apart. So the Russians are coming, the communists are coming, the Bolsheviks are coming, whether von Sternberg invades or doesn't invade. And the question being, was he trying to build up Mongolia as a force with which to reinvade Russia, or is he just trying to build up Mongolia because that's what he's con of? But I don't think the Bolsheviks sort of waited around for him to publish a white paper on the topic. They you know, wanted to take over Mongolia. For for the same reason that he did, really, to keep the railroad safe. And um, And so we're in 1921
0: now. Yeah, uh, we're in 1921. The fateful year 1921. The
1: fateful year 1921. And he he fights them to a draw and then tries a counterattack, and that may be the invasion that you're talking about. And, of course... In, in this kind of war, whoever gets outside their own logistical train is the loser. And that would probably be him. And, uh, the, the Bolsheviks send more troops down the railroad because that's the whole point of this exercise and, uh, outnumber, outflank and outfight, uh, Ungarn Sternberg. He wants to go to Tibet and start another crazy magic kingdom. And nobody involved wants that to happen. So they wind up, uh, starting to try and assassinate him. His army falls apart in recriminations about should we just go to Manchuria and open Russian tea rooms and pretend we were cool. And then the Bolsheviks grab him and the Cheka execute him in a firing squad, as is the thing you do if you're a Chekist to, um, uh, to Buddhas and Khans and theosophists and white generals and people who look at you bad. And he was all of those things. And so they, uh, they nail him in uh august uh i think no September yeah. of um uh, nineteen twenty one uh they shoot him on my birthday as it happens September fifteenth and uh that's the end of the bad baron
0: so uh that's all sorts of excitement that you could get your uh player characters into they, mm-hmm. there's a whole arc there where they you could uh do you, do we want he's not that sympathetic a guy um this is one of those things where uh everybody who's killing each other is a murderer. But uh, you could certainly be going in there with the uh, to protect the kind of theosophist guys. He, how how much do we have to fictionalize him to make him sympathetic <laughs>
1: enough to be bodyguarded by the PCs? Um, you know, let's see. To make Ungarn Sternberg sympathetic,
0: well, I think... well, not him. I don't think we're going to make, but but like his theosophist dude. Who oh, Asmundus, awesome, he's
1: totally sympathetic. He's a great guy. He's he's a he's a terrific fellow. I mean, he's a crazy person because he believes in theosophy, and so he's. He thinks that Ungarn Sternberg is a is a white Buddha instead of a crazy person with a right. sword. But no, he goes to he goes to he goes back to Poland and he's part of the anti Nazi uh, resistance in okay, Poland. Okay, There we go. He's, he's our... a great guy. Okay, super. I won't so hear they're... a bad thing ab- against Osandowski. Besides, right. you know, crazy. That's legitimate. You can say that.
0: So, so you go with Osandowski uh, into Mongolia in search of the wrathful Buddha. Uh, get in uh, over your head. Decide that the Buddha is a little much uh, too wrathful, but that gives you your. Uh, premise to carry the characters through a whole series of uh, these historical events and then uh, hopefully get out of there while the getting's good and not uh, wind up uh, in front of the firing squad.
1: Right. Um, I should recommend, by the way, at this point, a friend of the show, or at least friend of me, James Palmer, has written a book called The Bloody White Baron (laughs) about uh, Ungarn Sternberg, which is uh, a rollicking read. And I'm sure I have made one or two tiny little errors in my discussion of the Baron. And, uh, James is no doubt cringing if he's listening. So hello, James, ha ha, get your own podcast. Although I think he has his own podcast about Chinese history. So find that too.
0: Right. So, uh, when we are uh, using our podcast to taunt individual friends,
1: <laughs> I'm taunting a leading scholar who is also an individual friend. There you go. He's
0: he's a twofer, yeah. as, as we call him the taunting A double game.
1: taunt. Yes. <laughs> the rare double taunt.
0: Uh, nonetheless, it, I think it's time for us to move through commercial to a, uh, another segment and see who else we can taunt. Laying waste about
1: us with our swords.
0: Hey, Ken, what did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate
1: 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds could be- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at Drive-Thru
0: RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews.
1: Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right?
0: Indeed they do, Ken, and in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as Fallen Gods, Rune Punk Steam
1: Quests, Lamb Chop Love Songs, and the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X.
0: And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Tennant Reed.
1: Wesley Griffin. Alex Johnston. Darren Dume. And Peter Nix. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Joshua Hillerup asks Ken and Robin, I finally got into the show Gotham. And watching Bruce Wayne's progression toward becoming Batman, spoiler, has me wondering, how could you have a PC start out under a dramatic arc that eventually leads to playing a procedural character once that arc completes? I I, I think it's easier to do it with a PC than it is with a uh a, a sort of a TV or literary character, isn't it? Because with a PC, you just have some thing, some sort of uh uh drama systemy way that you have these two poles that have to resolve before you can figure out uh, why it is you dress up like a bat and beat up deformed people, and then once you work it out, good, you just do that forever.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, I should start by uh, letting our newer listeners know that we're talking about the terminology that I use in Hamlet's Hit Points and refine a bit in my upcoming book, uh, Beating the Story, from a Game Playwright, which is a book about writing narratives in general rather than uh, creating role-playing narratives on the fly. And in there, I've sort of refined my iconic hero versus dramatic hero division into something that I think is uh, really relevant to this question which is, there's actually two kinds of procedural hero. Procedural hero is who who solves uh, external problems in the world Uh, and the iconic hero is the one who's uh, sort of built to be a serialized character who uh, enacts the same uh, iconic ethos uh, time and again, encounters disorder, does something intrinsic to who they are to resolve the disorder, and then uh, and the next uh standalone adventure comes along whereas uh, and so that's your your batman of course uh, who's our example here uh or your uh your your tarzan or your sherlock Holmes or your miss Marvel. the other uh pattern is that of the uh transformative hero the one who undergoes an arc through the act of uh often again uh addressing the disorder in the world and so uh here our young Bruce Wayne over the course of uh, probably seven seasons, let's just guess, (laughs) is going to go uh, from uh, zero to hero. He's going to uh, follow follow that uh, time-honored tradition that you also see with with Frodo Baggins or, you know, the ordinary, uh, Luke Skywalker, the ordinary person who goes, uh, changes the world and is also changed from one state uh, to another. And so uh, traditionally, once you get to the end of that arc, your story is over, right? The Frodo goes off into the West. Uh, But uh, here we're going to have a situation where, and again, uh, I have no inside knowledge, but I'm going to bet that at the, uh, the last uh, scene um, of uh, series seven, uh, Bruce Wayne is going to put the cowl on. Uh, It's looking good that that actor is still going to, is going to be a a handsome early 20 year old, (laughs) which is good. (laughs) He's, he's, he's he's not going through a weird, uh, he he beater, doesn't. He beater doesn't beater turn kid.
1: strange looking yeah, in he's, puberty.
0: He's, he's just getting better looking. Um, and so, uh, yeah, let's
1: just hope he, he he doesn't outgrow his acting ability. Like in like in Boyhood, the 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 guy who was the boy was such a great child actor and such a not particularly good adolescent actor. There, there's
0: that. Uh, there's that fear as well. Yes.
1: Yeah. But, Although uh, I mean, as you go into being Batman, I guess you don't have to act as much. Right, right, um, and so just uh, say I'm Batman. Right, and so one of the tricks
0: that Gotham uses, of course, is that Batman, since he's not on stage yet, is not actually the protagonist of Gotham. It's uh, James Gordon, and James Gordon is absolutely an iconic hero. He's uh, and his. Iconic ethos is a familiar ethos, shall we say, because he's the maverick cop who doesn't play by the rules when the greater good demands it.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a really great premise for a story, Robin. You should write that down.
0: Uh, it's apparently an even better premise for a pitch that you're pitching to network television, who <laughs> uh, want everything to be very accessible to the to the uh, to the viewer. And I guess we could do another segment on Gotham to sort of trace its obvious evolution from the show that they pitched to the show that they wanted to make, because obviously they pitched a case of the week show with James Gordon, where really they wanted to make sort of a serialized boardwalk
1: empire, Board, boardwalk the empire the only with the Riddler yeah, or the penguin, I guess. That's
0: and the so the question then becomes, uh, or has been all along and we finally gotten to it. <laughs> how do you make that shift from the uh, transformative hero, uh, into the, uh, iconic hero? And how do you do that in a role playing game context? And so, I guess... Uh, and and the transformative hero arc is already sort of in D&D, right? That, yeah, that the is,
1: zero to hero. You uh, began as a peasant boy and wind up as a mighty paladin who strides the land, smiting evil.
0: Yeah, and it's present in an even more uh, ironic form in the original Warhammer fantasy roleplay where you start start off as a rat catcher and mm-hmm. then you become a slightly more elevated rat catcher. And if your head doesn't get blown off by a critical hit table, you wind up awesome at the end. Um, and so, anyway, the the thought is to come up with a storyline that will match that sweep of the growth of your character in a, a rule set that has a big growth curve. And then uh, there'll be some marker where, you know, if you defeat the dragons of of uh, dragon mountain or if you, uh, or the
1: dragons within yourself
0: or the drag. Well, that's, that's the parallel thing, right? So, uh, you know, your arc then is not just from zero to hero, but from, uh, you know, vengeful, too stable let's
1: say now do you think that you need something that is either like drama system or is that at the the very and one does not want to say least but at the very most traditional uh like the passions mechanic in pendragon such that you have a mechanical representation of the transformation within you as well as the i mean transformation of of the world outside you the symbolic foil transformation that you can get with just beating up ever larger beholders but this beholder represents my childhood, but but the one within you, do you think you need a mechanical representation? And then what do you do with that mechanical representation once you have become an iconic hero? The
0: transformation within can be much simpler than that. Uh, because if we think of Frodo and Luke and that they're they're not uh, healing an inner, inner trauma or fixing themselves, really they're just going from innocence to experience, right? Right. Which is... <laughs> You know, a staple of literature, the the coming of age, the
1: building's Roman, if
0: you will, exactly, and and that's what Gotham is, right? It's a coming of age in Gotham, and then at the end, he will be he will be Batman. So you you don't have to do it in that complicated uh, way. I think you just need a a MacGuffin for the ritual transformation, where you stop growing into being Batman, and then you are Batman, and then after that, you become the iconic hero, and you don't need to grow anymore. You just have to continue to be uh, exert your iconic ethos in the world. So I, I guess really the thing is it's about writing, establishing what your iconic ethos is going to be by the time you put on the cowl or throw the ring in Mount Mount Doom.
1: And that should be something that the GM and the player come up with together, right?
0: Right. Um, the complicated factor here is this puts a lot of attention on one character. Yes. That In D&D, everybody is going from zero to hero sort of at the same stage and some of them die and uh, others, they're elves, so they top out, uh, the top level little 11 if it's ad And, uh, really, I think if you want to focus it to that extent on that, uh, literary conceit, that you'd almost want to go, uh, with like a, a gumshoe one to one thing where you have a, uh, an arc of mysteries, uh, that you solve and each of them marks a, a way station on your transformation. And then, uh, either you, um, have the transformation to iconic hero at the end, and then it's just implied that you're going to keep having other adventures, or then you also go on to play some of. Well, those. you could
1: do you could do a combo platter where one player is going zero to hero like Luke, but another player is having a a personal values shift. Yeah. La, you know Han, right? You know Han begins as a corrupt smuggler who's just out for himself, and then comes to believe in the Empire in the not in the Empire in the Resistance rebellion at the end. So he has a per, uh, a personality shift and you could say that if he didn't get, you know, killed by Vader, uh, Obi-Wan has the same thing where he begins as a, as a hermit who doesn't believe in using the force, uh, in the outside world to someone who once more takes up the, the lightsaber and goes after the Sith because they have to be stopped. Right. Even if it means, you know, once more engaging with the world and, and, endangering his Jedi beliefs. And so you can have a bunch of characters with a bunch of different arcs.
0: And he does do that. Exactly. Right. That he, uh, it's, he has to be killed by Vader in order to undergo uh, his arc.
1: Right. And then yeah, I guess you get to play the Force Ghost throughout the rest of the adventure, which might or might not be fun.
0: Right. Or you have to move to
1: Edmonton. Yeah. <laughs> that's the worst thing. You're well, killed by well, presumably Darth Vader, you have you, have you have to, have to move, move to Alberta well,
0: first, and that's what you do in the game to, to justify your leaving the campaign. So, so uh, yeah, you could certainly, or you could make it a question, right, as to uh, everybody starts off as a zero, but one of you is going to become a transformative hero with a uh uh, an iconic ethos that you uh you know one of you will be a great legend
1: and the rest will just be you know the knights of the round table will
0: be the other knights of the round table and who's it going to be and so that can introduce a bit of uh uh tension and competition within the group as to you know who can render themselves the most mythic after starting out as a bunch of uh humble peasants and lackwits
1: right or even just as sort of you know cool guys, but not epic heroes, so you can sort of recast Jason and the argonauts uh as the who's going to be the true hero you and that that's sort of you know to an extent a little bit of what the trojan uh the Trojan war in the Iliad is about is you know they they all know that Achilles is the superhero, but everyone thinks. All right, Achilles is going to be the superhero, but I'm going to be the other guy that they talk about because Ajax has that and Diomedes has it and Odysseus has it and everyone's got their own little, I'm going to use my uh, superpower to make myself sort of the, the, the most glorious hero in the war on Troy. And they yeah. and that shows up a lot in, in, in Greek myth. And of course, it's super common in, in Norse myth as well. So it, it fits in with the sort of story you might want to tell where you're all pretty boss, but one of you is going to be the guy that this epic is about.
0: Yes, and and you know at the end you might argue it's like, oh, it wasn't about the war at all, it was about my struggle to get home after the war.
1: Right, turns out I well, turns out my character was so popular that I got a sequel. Suck on that, Achilles.
0: Exactly. <laughs> uh and uh you know, uh even Oedipus got unnecessary sequels, so it's it's it's, true. Uh, it's, it's not new to modern uh, no. entertainment. So anyway, I guess uh, uh once we are uh running out of uh, classical greek illusions it's time to uh head uh, through our uh, final exciting commercial message and uh and obviously since we promised not to talk about uh, gra- gravity resistance that there's going to be no gravity resistance
1: we shall not talk about gravity for the rest of the show that's our promise right
0: unless we're headed into the lab.
1: yeah obviously
0: The skies are dim always since the Maker
1: died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of
0: nutcrackers and his terrible boys sown from the flesh of the Maker of all puppets.
1: Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games, featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya and tons of ready-to-play tales from Kenneth Hite, Aaron Dembo, and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you.
0: So let's see. uh, We promised not to talk about gravity unless we enter the Elliptony hut. But, oh gosh, I think that I'm hearing the cry of an alien big cat out on the moors. And I'm pretty sure as I look across the hut we're in, I see a Nordic alien and a gray alien uh, drinking kombucha. And I think the Nordic alien is asking the gray alien, what's up with all that probing. So guess what, Ken, what? we are in fact in the lift hut and therefore at the command of a Patreon backer, Kevin J. Maroney, uh, we're going to talk about Roger Babson and uh, he's entirely sensible. He was a uh, financial analyst. He was born in 1875. Uh, he made it all the way to uh, 1967. He, uh, uh, died at 91, so that's that's a pretty good run there. He founded a financial analysis company called Babson Statistical Organization. He uh, did that in 1904, and that still exists to this day. Uh, it's called uh, Babson United now. And he was a, an investment uh, guru. Uh, you can look up his 10 rules to good investing, and all 10 of them are super sensible rules for uh, investing your money, so... Uh, There can't be anything possibly crazy about this guy. He uh, predicted slash partially helped precipitate the Great Crash. Uh, He knew it was coming. And uh, uh, let's see, what else do we want to talk about before we get to the main thing on the card here? He ran for president uh, in 1940 as head of the Prohibition Party. Right. Came in Uh, fourth. That's beginning to edge a bit into lost cause category to be in favor of Prohibition in
1: 1940. He is uh, from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Massachusetts aristocracy, practically. And a devotee of the work of Sir Isaac Newton. And now we begin to get into the world of fun. Because when he wanted to go to business school and be a businessman and write business advice and be all the things that he became. But his dad said... Business, that's ridiculous. That's impractical. No Babson <laughs> of mine is ever going to study business. You're going to go to MIT and study engineering. And so he goes to MIT and he enrolls in literally the first course in the catalog, which is about statistics. And the guy that's in that taught that class was a big believer in um uh, it, it was a railroad engineering statistics class. It was taught by a guy named uh, George Swain. Who believed that economics was balderdash because everything was run by by forces, just as predicted by the great uh, scientist Sir Isaac Newton, and that for every action there would be an equal and opposite reaction, and that is where Babson gets the notion that there's going to be a big crash because he saw there was a big boom in the 20s, and we're all you know praising his sober sided statistical-mindedness. It's because he's a crank Newtonian from the jump, and he's that because he was sent to MIT and got a business education at an engineering school. Right. And his engineering education apparently somewhat twisted by the same process.
0: And so it was the name of this first course, uh, well, it can't be if it was the front of the catalog. I would assume it would be trains, bracket on time, but I guess it must be <laughs> a statistical inquiry into trains, <laughs> yes, brackets exactly. on time.
1: Yes, exactly. Brackets on timeness thereof. Um, and so he uh, he contracted tuberculosis, And the doctors said, you should go to a mountain climate because the warm, uh, wet air is what's giving you tuberculosis uh, because gravity pulls the dense air down. And he's thinking, is gravity trying to mess with me? Because his sister.
0: Yes. This is where we flash back to the obligatory childhood trauma. Exactly. Someone says wet and then. There's a
1: flashback. Flashback. Well, it's your problem there, Mr. Babson, is the gravity. And he flashes back to his sister drowning in the river in uh, near Gloucester. And he wrote, they say she was drowned, but the fact is that through temporary paralysis or some other cause, she was a good swimmer. I should be reading this like a Ken Burns letter. She was unable to fight gravity, which came up and seized her like a dragon and brought her to the bottom. There she smothered and died from lack of oxygen. Roger Babson.
0: Yes, it's a little known fact that all
1: drownings are actually death by gravity. Death by gravity. Death by dragon gravity. It seized her like a dragon. It was not pulling on her at all times in all spaces. That's a crazy notion of gravity. Gravity is actually a dragon. And this is where we begin to get the sense that maybe he's got a little going on. Anyway, he becomes a zillionaire by writing the first ever stock newsletter and uh, stock analysis paper. At the time, no one had anything like that. Now there's a million of them, but he invented it. And so every stockbroking firm in America subscribed to Babson's newsletter. So he was the original CNBC. So it's not the investing that makes him rich. It's the telling other people how to invest. He is the Levi Strauss of stockbroking. He doesn't. He doesn't pan for gold. He sells you pants to wear while panning for gold. And he makes a fortune whether you find gold or not, because the depression makes him even richer because everyone's like, oh, my God, Babson was so right. We should subscribe to his newsletter. (laughs) Well, it's apples or the newsletter. Well, we got to subscribe to the newsletter. It's super important.
0: Yeah. Thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore.
1: Yes. Well, the the notion of cranks pushing crazy notions about uh, the economy to make themselves rich. That's nonsense. Now we know things. We know that, we know that the uh, economy is not actually gravity. It's an interaction of the strong and weak nuclear forces. Yes.
0: And this is where uh, it's time for you to buy Ken and
1: Robin. Ken and Robin's gold financial newsletter and seed corn. <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, in 1947, he's 72. The newsletter business is, is beginning to pall and his 17 year old grandson, Michael drowns, saving a friend who'd fallen out of a boat. And as Babson says, He succeeded in getting the woman back to the boat. She is healthy and happy today, but that dragon gravity came up and snatched Michael. He was so exhausted, he couldn't fight this force, which pulled him to the bottom. Roger Babson, Gravity, Our Enemy Number One, which he wrote in 1948 as the sort of manifesto, if you will, of what became the Gravity Research Foundation in 1949. He was a lifelong friend of Thomas Edison because Thomas Edison, uh like many of us, says, oh, look, a millionaire is interested in me. I would like to be their friend. <laughs> <laughs> he was friends with a lot of millionaires, was our Thomas. And you so... An expensive whiskey. whiskey? And, and, and so Thomas had the same sort of Uh, Cut and try engineering background. He was far from a theoretical physicist. And so I suspect that he and uh, Babson had a high old time talking about gravity and Newton. Babson, by the way, was a big collector of Newtoniana. He bought uh, Newton's papers, his books, uh, volumes of his library. He bought the apple tree under which Newton sat when the apple fell on his head. It, which it did not, but you know, tell Roger Babson that, or sell him a tree for a hundred thousand dollars. What are you well, going to do?
0: Gravity was trying to kill Newton, Newton by with apples. an apple
1: on him. Anything else is clearly hogwash. If Newton had um, uh, had 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 been apple susceptible, uh, we would not have gravity today. We'd all be floating around. So Babson decided to establish a foundation that would study gravity and defeat mankind's oldest enemy. And he sets it up in new Boston, New Hampshire, because it's far enough away from Boston that when the Soviets attack, uh, it won't be bombed. But in case there is a nuclear war, he makes sure that the foundation has enough, uh, lumber, uh, and firewood around it. He buys like 1500 acres of forest and he, uh, stocks it with a thousand gallons of fuel oil so that it's self-sufficient in case of an atomic strike. Now, the more I read about Roger Babson, the better I like him. Also, during the Depression, remember he's a zillionaire from the Depression because everyone's buying newsletters? He doesn't just sit on his money. He goes to unemployed stone cutters, and he hires them to cut inspiring messages into area stones. There's an area near Gloucester yes, in, called... In Dogtown, Massachusetts. ...called Dogtown, which used to be run by witches and then went to the dogs, I guess, hence the name. Uh And so there's a bunch of stones there that have hilarious... Not hilarious. Uplifting and moving inscriptions because Roger Babson went around and hired all the out-of-work stone cutters to carve things like... Listen to your mom, and a penny saved is a penny earned, and this stone does not lead to Gloucester, and other things like that. Into well, the stones, my, I, I
0: think the most passive-aggressive one is the stone that tells you to get a job. Get a job.
1: <laughs> Maybe stone cutting. There's a possibility. <laughs> yeah.
0: it, it was a, it was a depression, so it doesn't then say you hippie.
1: But... No, it, you <laughs> no. There's um uh, there, there, there uh, Anyway, uh, we're, we're slightly off topic. Not super because well, while we're
0: slightly off topic, my my other favorite detail is that. Uh, he had a patent on an early parking meter, but this parking meter failed because in order to operate, the driver had to then hook up the parking meter to the their car battery.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, People opted out, I guess. Yeah. It turns out that that is not the ideal way. He was an inventor of a parking meter, but not the parking not meter. Not the parking meter. It. So he, uh, so anyway, he, 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 he's, he, he, you can see him ask, you can imagine him asking, you know, professors in the New England area. So which university has the finest anti-gravity library and being, uh, escorted out the door as fast <laughs> as whatever escorts a millionaire? Yeah, at, in- at Harvard, they said Yale. At <laughs> Yale, yes, they said Harvard. <laughs> right. Yes. We, no one said nobody because he was a, a millionaire. And so he built the world's finest anti-gravity library, 34,000 books on anti-gravity. He bought a company called Invention Incorporated and hired three full-time patent engineers to study every patent application at the patent office in case someone tries to patent anti-gravity and the know-nothings at the patent office say you can't do that. And he um, uh, then provides uh, funds to area universities, including Tufts, uh, for anti-gravity research. And they have to – because he knows – He knows that people will take the money and then not use it for anti-gravity research. He's clever. So he makes them also take a giant stone engraved with something like, This monument has been erected by the Gravity Research Foundation, Roger W. Babson founder. It is to remind students of the blessings forthcoming when a semi-insulator is discovered in order to harness gravity as a free power... And reduce airplane accidents.
0: And until then,
1: get a job. And get a job, you hippie, because by then it's the 60s. So there's a lot of these Babson stones and some universities sort of said, if we have a less crazy stone, can we have less money? Is that all right? And other universities (laughs) like, no, no, we'll take the craziest stone you got and all the money. And so the, the money some of it would be in stock. And then, you know, like DuPont, he would pick stocks that he knew were going to go up in the future. And he'd say, this, uh, we're giving you the, the stock in trust. I'm buying a thousand shares for you now. And then you just sell it in the, in the seventies or eighties and, um, uh, use it for anti gravity research, by which by then will be a booming field. My favorite thing about all the gravity stones is that at Tufts University, they took his money and they opened what they call the Institute of Cosmology, which studies. Gravity as a fundamental force, not as a dragon. Um, but other than that, it's a great institute. And when you get your PhD from the Institute of Cosmology, your thesis advisor drops an apple on your head next to your <laughs> next to the Babson Stone. <laughs> Whoever said scientists don't have a sense of humor? Um, so anyway, the, the the Gravity Research Foundation has an essay contest which uh, used to be for crazy people. And then even Babson, I think, said, too many crazy people are writing essays. <laughs> let's, instead of have an essay, How I Would Defeat Gravity, the World's Oldest Monster, let's just have an essay about gravity. And then real physicists started entering. Stephen Hawking, and he's won the contest. And so it's a real thing. Physicists are super proud of getting this $4,000 Babson prize because... It means you were actually able to talk intelligently and clearly about gravity for laymen. Uh, and uh, like a bunch of Nobel Prize winners have won the Babson Gravity Prize. So in a way, Roger Babson did nothing but good in his life. In another realer way, he was a crazy person. But unlike, say, Baron Ungarn von Sternberg, his crazy personing mostly involved employing stonecutters and fighting uh, the ancient devil of gravity. and Not so, a single massacre on his uh, resume. None that we know of, just a couple of convenient drownings, which he was probably not even involved in. No, definitely not. So, so I, my hat, would be floating to the surface free of gravity uh, in honor of Roger W. Babson. I think he's terrific.
0: And I guess uh, as a MacGuffin, uh, if you can get any of those giant boulders uh, uh, from Dogtown, they surely have some sort of uh, Magical oh, but they float. resonance. Yeah, it may be that if you move all the. It m- might be that he discovered the secret and then realized, uh, as per our, our first segment, that maybe this is dangerous, actually, that a lack of gravity can be just as lethal has too much gravity. It has too much gravity. And so the stones are actually all there in place to uh to keep gravity uh where it is. Uh, evil dragon
1: though it sometimes is. They they they're penning up the evil dragon. Exactly. He also I there's the there's still the gravity foundation still exists. Um it's it it's sort of academic advisor I guess. The is a 91-year-old scholar who I won't name because it's probably a little embarrassing. But I love the notion that there's a 91-year-old scholar whose job is still to keep an eye on anti-gravity research because that is exactly the guy who turns up dead on the PC's doorstep. Right. Clutching half of a, of a formula floating or, slightly, flo- yeah, floating, but dead and, yeah. and clutching half of a formula or who calls them all together at Tufts University uh, to, to convey to them, I've been keeping this a secret even from my the Babson heirs, but I can't keep it forever. I've chosen you from your entries in the gravity contest because you're the visionaries who will realize gravity truly is a dragon. And its name is Neolothotep or whatever. And then yes. you and then As his inkwell begins to uh to float. Exactly. And so you uh I mean he the the, the whole thing just reeks of great setups for things. Um also, you know, um uh it, you know, New England. So obviously there's a Cthulhu Mythos connection. Uh the nearest uh Babson stone to me is in uh Wheaton College, which I guess being a college that was founded uh, by fundamentalist Presbyterians is like you can't put a stone so crazy that someone in our uh, governing board doesn't believe it. We'll take all <laughs> the money. Um, uh, but uh, there's there's other ones. Most of them are in New England, like uh, Keene College in New Hampshire, Middlebury, uh, Tufts. Um, there's one at Tuskegee Institute. So obviously he would, he did not uh, he he was not a a prejudiced man, uh, Roger Babson. Uh, everyone is equally oppressed by the dragon gravity, everyone should get to float, and that is a message that should inspire us all now.
0: Uh, Well, uh, once we reach our final inspirational uh, message, it's time for the uh, ineluctable forces of uh, gravity to pull us down and out of uh, this edition of our exciting podcast, but uh, never fear, folks, we will float like uh, butterflies and and perhaps sting like a bee or two uh, in our next episode, uh, which you will find in your podcast receptacle of choice a mere week from the drop date of this episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games.
1: Pelgrane Brass. Ask Fagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Slide down the pole to the Batcave alongside such patrons as Sean Krause, Andrew Collins, Horatio Rutkowski, The Redacted
1: Files Podcast, and Matt Ballera. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again,
0: we will talk about stuff.